0: Good morning. good morning. Happy Easter, everyone. Uh, we're really glad you're here this morning. And uh, my name is Tom Nelson. And again, we just are so delighted that you decided to worship with us today. So it's fun hearing you sing and uh, fun seeing you all look good today. Um, all that good dress. I have a tie on today. I just want you to know I thought that'd be a good thing. But uh, the name Steve Jobs uh, is a legendary name today, isn't it? He died 2011. Most of us know that name, uh, founder of Apple. Uh, And Steve Jobs' life has been described in many ways. Uh, One of my favorite is Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. Many of you have probably read that. Also, recently, the movie Jobs highlights his life, and uh, both highlight the remarkable genius of Stephen Jobs, who's influenced our life and continues to in in the world of Apple and computers and iPhones and all that sort of thing. But in Steve Jobs' movie, uh, the movie on his life, I think there's a particular compelling scene that captures, again, not only the genius of Steve Jobs, but the great brokenness of it. Here in this scene, in in the movie Jobs, you see the brokenness and alienation uh, Steve has with his daughter, who he virtually abandoned all her life. Watch. Don't you just love how director Joshua Michael Stern captures the dripping irony of that scene? Here is someone, Stephen Jobs, who was a perfectionist, who was insistent on making every computer, everything perfect, and yet in this remarkable scene, you see the irony that Stephen Jobs himself is anything but perfect, and he admits it. One of the nursery rhymes I remember growing up, I had no idea when I first read it or heard it, how profoundly it speaks into the human condition And it's a nursery rhyme we all know, right? Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I wanna suggest to all of us that we live in a Humpty Dumpty world. I think that best describes it, don't you? And we live very Humpty Dumpty lives The question of our brokenness, our flawedness as human beings is really not the compelling question. Regardless of our faith or non-faith or worldview, the question for all of us is, can we be whole again? Can we? We know we're broken. The question is, can we be whole? And as a faith community, uh, the last several weeks we have been exploring the first book in the New Testament. It's called The Gospel of Matthew. And the writer Matthew gives us a front row seat into who Jesus is and what he did and what he taught. Now this morning we come to chapter 9 of the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew presents us a remarkable story. It is stunning. In this story, we're going to encounter both bad news and yes, good news. The bad news, as you imagine, is that It just reinforces that we as humans are badly broken. But there is good news for all of us this morning, and that is that King Jesus can make us whole again. And these are the themes that Matthew presents to us in this riveting story. If you brought a Bible, uh, have it electronically in your phone or paper copy, turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Now let me say, if you've ever entertained, anybody ever entertained the thought that maybe the Bible is not that fun of a storybook to read. (laughs) Let me just suggest that this historical moment in Jesus' life, as Matthew presents it, may change your mind. So I'd like you to join me this morning. Would you put on, through the lens of your imagination, would you put on uh, some sandals and uh, join me as we walk across the sands of time from the 21st century to the first century? We enter into this world and join with me as we enter into Matthew's first century world, the sights and sounds of the Middle Eastern sky and terrain is different. The language is different, the sights, the sounds, the food. But we enter into this world and we arrive in a small little town called Nazareth. Jesus has been a carpenter there for 30 years. Now, as Matthew presents Jesus... Jesus has now left his carpentry tools and he has become what we might think of as an itinerant rabbi or preacher going across the land of Israel. So we enter into this story. Now Jesus has moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. Capernaum is a little town, fishing village, an important village in the Roman Empire in this section of the country. But it's a small fishing village with all the hustle and bustle of the industry of fishing and the Roman uh, kind of military presence. Now, I want you to sort of imagine walking down the cobblestone stone streets in this small little hamlet on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps the day is cool. We don't know exactly. But the gospel writer, Matthew, who is one of Jesus' closest friends, again ushers us, us right into a front row seat Not only what we saw in chapter 8 to observe Jesus' remarkable power over the storm, over sickness, but now again, as we've heard before, to hear Jesus' brilliant teaching. So he presents to us in chapter 8 and in chapter 9, Jesus' merciful and omnipotent power. As chapter 9 opens, we find this interesting feature in Matthew that Jesus catches a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee and he returns home. Now, this is a big deal because Jesus in the first century is the ultimate celebrity of the day. Everybody's heard of him. He's like, think of the best celebrity in your world you want to see, and now think of you being in a small town, and Jesus, the greatest celebrity of the first century, resides now in your hometown. So when Jesus comes to his home, everybody in the small town knows it. The most famous resident has arrived. So This is where we find ourselves. The gospel writer, Matthew, says that the crowds are just flocking Jesus' house, where he stays. All Matthew says, as a gospel writer, is basically, think of five guys. Maybe you're hungry. Uh, I don't know. But five guys, this is not about hamburgers. Uh, What this is, is five guys show up at Jesus' footsteps. And we know that four guys bring their friend who is paralyzed on, like, think of a stretcher cot, like an ambulance cot, and they bring him to Jesus. Now, to understand more of the story, you go, that's an interesting story, but to understand more of the texture, we have other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, that add a lot of other detail. So again, if you want to look more, you're curious, I'm not going to have time to unpack all of it this morning, but Mark chapter 2 and Luke 5, you can find more of the details of the story. But let me highlight it. Imagine with me, you've arrived early at Jesus' home. You're one of the lucky few that are packed into this house. And it is packed. Mark and Luke tell us it is wall to wall, rooftop to rooftop, rafter to raptor, armpit to armpit, in a hot, stuffy, non-air-conditioned room. But it doesn't bother you because you are this close to Jesus and you're hearing the most brilliant teacher of the time. You're that close to the superstar, right? So the gospel writers describe the pressiness of the crowd. There are bodies everywhere. Imagine you just being pressed in. Out the door, this is way beyond fire code, okay? I mean, this is like fire code has been long gone all of a sudden, in this pinprick silence as you're listening to Jesus, you begin to hear some scuffling on the roof. Actually, you hear them walk on the outside because in the first century house, the stairs were not on the inside. They were on the outside to the top of the roof. So imagine you're sitting there, listening to Jesus teach. You're listening to every word. You're pinching yourself. You can't believe you have this closest seat to Jesus. And all of a sudden, there's a commotion. You're hearing... A commotion of footsteps outside, then on top of the roof above you. And you're going, you've got to be kidding me, right? The noise begins to get louder. Not only that, imagine sitting there and pieces of dirt start dropping in front of you. Then pieces of tile and roof. And you're thinking, who are those? I will let you add that. Um, imagine all of a sudden the tile appears And you're like, what is the owner thinking here? Why doesn't he do something? And the roof is beginning to be dismantled in front of you. Piece by piece, the hole gets larger. What was Jesus thinking trying to speak? Ever thought of that? I mean, you know, if a cell phone goes off when you're speaking, if you have a cell phone, you can turn that off. Uh, But if a cell phone goes off, it's very distracting. But I can't imagine this morning, (laughs) good timing. It's awesome, actually. <laughs> so imagine now, if you, can, if you can pull this off, imagine the roof tiles starting to you know, come apart. And you can imagine what that would do. There was this awkward silence. There was this being people being annoyed. And you're thinking, what on earth is happening? What was going through Jesus' mind? How could you ever speak in that? You know, some crazy things are happening, and the gospel writers They tell us it's a crazy moment. This is, truth is stranger than fiction. This is the language. As a pastor, I have to say, sometimes our vocations, again, are not more important than yours, but we have some crazy stuff that goes on when you're a pastor. Okay, can I just be a little pastoral today? What happens is when we go to clergy meetings or pastor's meetings with our peers, we often tell stories. It's a catharsis. It's how we do therapy to each other, right? And, uh, we tell stories, and these stories are constantly emphasizing that truth is stranger than fiction. In other words, there's no way you can make this up. And this is the context of the gospel writer. The details, there's no way they can make this up. <laughs> Jesus is teaching this home, and the home's packed, and the roof is, you know, being ripped out above him. You know, I mean, this is amazing. Well, as pastors, we tell stories. And I have to tell you, I don't know if it's in full moon. I don't know what it is, about weddings. Weddings are the most amazing joy, but they're the most amazing stories. Can I tell you one story? The best story of a wedding. The best story of the wedding I have ever officiated. And I've had some doozies. Let me give you the picture. The church is packed. It's many years ago, so all the names are protected. (laughs) Don't try to figure out who this is. (laughs) The church is packed. And the wedding is about to begin. Got the feeling, everyone's like quieting down, right? Prelude, bridesmaid, groomsmen come in, and all of a sudden, it's the time for the bride to come down the aisle. Father and bride come down the aisle. I'm thinking, this is great. This could be a great wedding. They stand right in front of me, right? And when the music stops, what does the clergy say? Please be seated. No sooner had I got. Please be seated out, then the father of the bride's cell phone goes off. Absolutely true story. And I'm thinking things that I would not speak publicly at this moment, <laughs> and you wouldn't listen to me the rest of the message. I mean, I said things under my breath like, Who is this idiot? but I didn't use the word idiot, okay? And everything goes quiet, it's an awkward quiet. The, the bride looks at her dad in aghast and I'm thinking this is amazing but it's not done. He pulls his cell phone out and instead of shutting it off he answers it. <laughs> and he starts talking. True story, absolute true story. You know, when I read this story, I think, Jesus must have felt a little bit like me. (laughs) No cell phone, but a roof being dismantled in front of you. The point is, this is an absolutely true story. It's historicity, just screams of authenticity. And what also strikes me, imagine, again, you're sitting there. It's packed. The roof is being disassembled enough so they can drop this guy down on ropes on his stretcher. Jesus doesn't say anything to stop. (laughs) He lets this guy be the grand entrance right down in front. Amazing. And Matthew's story is really not to give us details like Mark and Luke. He just looks at Jesus' verbal response to this guy. I wish I knew what Jesus was thinking. But we know what Jesus said. Jesus sees there no whole barred faith, doesn't he? And he looks at this guy on the cot. Assume he's a guy, a person, probably most like a guy. And he says to him, Take heart, my son. Notice the gentleness, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. If there had been awkwardness before of the roof coming down, this is extremely awkward. Because everyone in that room expected Jesus to physically heal this guy to care for his physical needs, and Jesus is looking at his broken soul. Not only are they surprised, the religious leaders are coming unglued because Rabbi Jesus is saying by his very words that he is in the company of deity itself because forgiving sin is only a divine prerogative. What an amazing moment. And you and I are sitting there. God, Jesus, what are you doing? Now notice, brilliant Jesus, he asked this provocative question. You see it in verse five, you have your Bible open. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? So you're sitting there, teacher's looking at you, How are you going to answer that question? One sense, what? Saying someone's sins are forgiven. That's easy. You can't verify that externally. How How do you verify that? Rearranging atoms and molecules sounds hard, but at least you can see it. So which is really more difficult? Matthew wants us to understand that truly forgive someone is really much more difficult because you have to be God himself sinless son of God, to do that. Now notice how brilliant Jesus employs brilliant logic. He goes from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is basically saying to the religious leaders, and they're ready to pounce on it. Okay, y'all watch. Maybe he said y'all, I don't know. Watch and see. Now I'm going to do the lesser thing you can immediately see so that you will believe in my power to do the greater thing which you will not immediately see catch that so jesus is in verse 6 notice the so that so that you may know that the son of man that's a that's a statement of his own deity and messianic identity god language has authority on earth to what to forgive sins Wow. Jesus then looks at this guy on the stretcher caught before him and says, rise up and walk. And at that very word, this guy is instantly healed. Can you imagine the crowd going bonkers to see that? See, in bold faith, the paralytic came to Jesus seeking healing of a very real physical need, and he leaves not only having his physical need met, he leaves having his spiritual need for true forgiveness from sin met too. Don't you love in the story that Jesus' compassion for physical needs and spiritual needs are both important to him? See, we may look good on the outside. You all look good on the outside this morning. We may have our lives together on on the outside. We may do our work well, which is important. We may have children that seem to be doing well. That's awesome. We may have good friends. But inside, we know it. And those closest to us know it of our deep brokenness. One of the things that strikes me about marriage, if you are married or have been married or will be married one day, you know, you can't hide from your spouse. The longer you're together, you know each other like that. And sometimes it's scary, transparently, for me. Because my bride, Liz, knows me backwards and forwards. I can't hide it. She sees my brokenness. See, all of us have deep longings in our heart, don't we? We have distant dreams that have been shattered in our lives. We have haunting fears that confront us at night. We have mocking doubts about Life and existence and truth. And we have painful discontent in life and we have many frayed relationships. Our brokenness is much worse than we ever care to admit. And one of the good news moments is that Jesus entered this broken Humpty Dumpty world and he knows your greatest struggles and also your greatest need. And the greatest need is not physical or emotional health or even relational happiness, which is wonderful, or material well-being, which is good. It is our spiritual well-being. The greatest human problem is the sin problem. The late Dallas Willard, who was a professor of philosophy at USC, describes it this way. He says, it is humanity's deeper sickness. Jesus came to cure our deepest sickness. He knows your greatest needs And my greatest need is to be forgiven of our sin. See, without Christ, you and I face a perilous eternity. Without Christ, you and I are utterly alone in a meaningless universe. No question. And living without forgiveness, Jesus offers us to wake up every morning facing the meaninglessness and emptiness and loneliness and fearfulness of the human life. His insightful book, Road to Character, New York Times columnist David Brooks, writes so well about today's culture. He talks about sin. It's a little longer quote, but I want you to look at it carefully. His insight is powerful. He says, today, the word sin has lost its power and awesome intensity. It is used most frequently in the context of fattening desserts. But in truth, sin like vocation and soul is one of those words that is impossible to do without. He says no matter how hard we try to reduce everything to deterministic brain chemistry, no matter how hard we try to reduce behavior to the sort of herd instinct that is captured in big data, no matter how hard we strive to replace sin with non-moral words like mistake, or error, or weakness. The most essential parts of life are matters of individual responsibility and moral choice. Whether to be brave or cowardly, honest or deceitful, compassionate or callous, faithful or disloyal. See, the biblical writers 2,000 years ago point out that sin, this human condition, is not just doing things we shouldn't, It's not just not doing things we should. Sin is who we are as broken humans. The deep thread of sin is woven through the fabric of our attitudes, our actions, our entire life. While Steve Jobs rightly admits he's not all he should be, he describes it that he is poorly made, but the Christian worldview says we are not originally poorly made. It's that we have rebelled from the perfect creator who made us that sin has disfigured and corrupted God's original perfect design for humans and we need to be remade again. Sin can never be solved by human management or masking it. We must be remade and forgiven as new creatures. This is the good news story of the gospel. The greatest thing hindering your life and mine to live the life we long to live, the life we were created to live, a life of happiness and hope, is our sin problem. That is my greatest obstacle and that is your greatest obstacle too. And Jesus ultimately points us not to fulfill longings or solve problems. He points us to himself. Jesus came to forgive you and me and to transform you and me in all dimensions of human existence. While we are badly broken, this text reminds us that Jesus can make us whole again. Matthew chapter 9 points to the end of the book. It all builds to this literary crescendo. In Matthew chapter 28, the story of a man's healing here points to the ultimate healing given to us, the hope of the empty tomb in Matthew chapter 28. And here are the words, perhaps the most brilliant and beautiful and hopeful words ever uttered on planet Earth in verse 28, or verse 6 of Matthew 28. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. Matthew wants us to grasp with heart and mind that the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection are the greatest news imaginable, better than we can ever imagine. Will you not only look at the empty tomb with me this morning, but will you listen to what the empty tomb means in your life and mind? The really good news, will you hear it? Will you hear it fresh with me? Is that Jesus cares deeply for you. Yes, you. He left the heavenly throne room and all that mystery of the Trinity and all the glory and he came to this planet Earth as a humble baby in a Bethlehem cave. And he did it for you and me. The Son of God lived the life we were created to live and he died the death we deserve to die. Jesus cares so deeply for you. There's no person in the universe that loves you more and nothing more your soul desires than him. He is the greatest lover of your soul. When you listen to the empty tomb's message, you hear the good news that Jesus demonstrated that love for you. Yes, you. Rabbi Paul, who becomes known as the Apostle Paul when he encounters the risen Christ, puts it this way, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, that's you and me, Christ died for us. On the cross, Jesus voluntarily laid down his precious life. His sinless blood is an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. On the cross, Jesus paid a debt you and I could never pay. Wow. See, the really good news of Easter is not only that Jesus cares deeply for you and demonstrates that love for you, Jesus also provides true hope for you. True hope. That first Easter morning was the day death died. And raising from the dead, Jesus not only validated who he was and who he is, he also defeated death. And he gives us confident hope, friends, that those who in faith embrace him as their Savior and Lord will too defeat death and one day be completely whole. Recently, listen, I saw the movie Risen. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's a very good movie, actually. I really like it. Uh, there's a, a scene in here, I won't tell you all about the movie, but it's featuring this Roman guard, this Roman centurion, after Jesus' resurrection. And You know from history that when Jesus rose from the dead, it put all of Jerusalem up in arms, and particularly the Roman army are trying to find Jesus' body. It's a corpse crusade, that's what I call it. They turn every stone up, and up to try and find the body of Jesus. They can, of course. And there's a scene where this guard is increasingly just overwhelmed by the facts of the resurrection, and they interrogate and arrest those close to Jesus. And there's a scene where Bartholomew, one of Jesus' followers, is being threatened by this guard. He says, if you don't cooperate, we're going to crucify you. You can hardly imagine how brutal that death was. And Bartholomew hears the fullness of that. He looks down and feels the weight of that impending death that he is going to face. He looks up at this guard with a smile on his face, and he says, I've seen the resurrected Jesus, and it changes everything. In the midst of a noisy and cluttered world, the message of Easter comes to us and says, listen up. There was a wonderful article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. It's called The Challenge of Easter. It was written by James Martin. It's a stunning article in so many ways, but he ends this article with such a beautiful literary crescendo. Listen carefully. He says, by walking out of the tomb on Easter... Jesus declared something life-changing, something subversive, and something that cannot be overcome by commercialism. It is a message that refuses to be tamed. The resurrection says not only that Christ has the power of life over death, but something more subversive. And he ends the article with these words. The resurrection says listen, listen. Will you listen to the good news of the empty tomb? The empty tomb, if you listen carefully, declares that you are not just a meaningless molecule floating through space of nothingness for no meaning. You are an image bearer of God with a meaningful mission in the world. You matter. You matter more than you ever realize? If you listen carefully to the empty tomb, you understand that you are never alone or you'll never be abandoned. Jesus' resurrection means that we live not in a God absent world, but a God bathed world. Jesus promises his followers. After his resurrection, he will always be with them. He will never leave or forsake us. The empty tomb declares you are not merely living for the weekend, but living every day for the glory of God. In the relationships you have, the work you do, whether that work is paid or unpaid, your life is infused with meaning now and forever. And it matters because of the empty tomb. The empty tomb declares that the hurts, heartaches, pains, and struggles you are dealing with are not permanent, but temporary. Many of us came through the door this morning. We're facing struggles in our life of every kind you can imagine. Pain, heartache, uncertainty, and when we walk out of these doors, many of us will face those same problems again. But gazing into the empty tomb, our perspective on those problems change. And when we look into the empty tomb, the, the problems we don't, you know, don't just immediately vanish, but they don't seem that big anymore. Our problems, doubts, and struggles are dwarfed by the good news of the gospel. The Eastern message is not, it's not a Pollyanna world. It is a call to live fully in this world with an otherworldly hope. And that is the hope of the new heavens and new earth that await us one day. You may not know how the next chapter of your life will be, but you can know with great confidence how the final chapter story ends. And for the follower of Christ, it ends good. Sometimes we need to hear that again. Recently I had a conversation. It was a two-hour conversation on the phone. A friend of mine and her husband took a job in another city not long ago and not long after moving. The bottom dropped out of their life. She described to me on the phone the last several months as unimaginably horrific. Her husband's health spiraled downward, and she lost him to death recently. She's a young single parent with young children, a new job, and a new city. Her life isn't anything she would have ever imagined. Ever. The great loss she is feeling, the lingering questions that haunt her, the fear of what this will mean for her precious children without a dad. Yet, in the midst of such a black hole, of suffering and grief. The glimmer of a supernatural peace and rays of a supernatural hope were evident in her words of tenacious trust in her risen Savior. Gazing into the empty tomb, she knows she is not alone, nor is she ever abandoned. She said to me, Tom, I'm going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Because death is not the end of my husband. Death is not the end of my hope. And her voice broke with tears. Death does not have a final word. Empty tomb changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, allow us to hear the good news of the glorious resurrection. If you're here this morning and have never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, may you in humble repentance and faith reach out to his nail-scarred hands and he will embrace you. Heavenly Father, may we hear the good news in fresh ways this morning. May we hear the message of the empty tomb. May we gaze deeply within it.